Today on The Black Goat, all the cool kids are learning R, should you? And a letter about the possibility of ageism on the job market. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett. And Alexa, you're in your new house and you're adjusting to life on your own. How's that going? Yeah, so I'm, I'm about to say something that I think is forbidden for academics to say, but I find myself with an unusual amount of free time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so, I mean, I'm going from living with, um, essentially living with a roommate and her boyfriend um, to living on my own. And it's not like, I was always hanging out with my roommate and her boyfriend, but it just changes the way that, you know, you spend time in your house. And I didn't actually spend a lot of time in my old house. But now um, at the new place, I like it a lot and I spend a lot of time there. Um, and so it's just me hanging out in this house. Like, what should I do? Also, my Isn't semester just ended. It's pretty good. There are some times it. when, so I, there are like times when I'm like, like I feel a little bit lonely. Although <laughs> usually if I feel lonely, I can... Um, I can scrounge somebody up, but, um, but yeah, it's like, it's sort of a different mental space to be in than I'm used to. Like, Mm -hmm. I guess I'm used to basically having things scheduled to the point where I'm not like, oh, what could I do today? Mm -hmm. Um, and now, yeah, because I, you know, I finished grading and my semester is over, and so I have less work-related stuff to do. I do find myself being like, I could try to put yeah. some wallpaper on the wall, <laughs> see, see how that goes. Oh, like. well, I never have that thought, but I, I think I've said this before on the podcast that like, I did, I did this this week. I can't remember which day. Where like my favorite thing in the world is when I have like half an hour in the middle of the day, and because I live really close to campus, I can walk home and, like, lay in bed and play solitaire for half an hour in the middle of the day. And I'm like, this is the most, (laughs) like, I'm just like, life is so good. That is bizarre. (laughs) I do not play solitaire ever. Well, putting up wallpaper in your free time sounds bizarre to me. Yeah, fair. To each their own. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, I can identify with, that but I, if I had half an hour I would watch Netflix I would not play solitaire yeah uh, both are equally appealing to me I had the thought so this week I'm home I'm not often home for a week at a time which is kind of weird that that's how extreme things have gotten but so I've been home all week and so I have a lot of time to myself because I live alone and stuff and I had the thought I think I called my mom like on Sunday this week and then I called my mom like on Tuesday or Wednesday and this morning I was like I'm bored. I should call my mom. And I'm like, I think I'm calling my mom too much. <laughs> not for her days, but just like, it's like an identity crisis. Like, I'm not 22 anymore. I shouldn't be calling my mom three times a week. Well, you'll know it's gotten bad when your mom tells you that. Yeah, right? you know, I don't think she would ever feel <laughs> She that would way. not hesitate. Sabine, stop calling me. That's true. Given my mom, she would definitely tell me. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, so, what's, so, okay, what's I don't know why like, I thought... Sanjay? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, first, okay. So I don't know why I thought of this. Do you get, do you guys watch Broad City? Yeah. No. When you talked about hanging out with your roommate's boyfriend, I just immediately thought of Bevers. 
Uh-huh. Like, yeah. is, uh, is he someone... Because you don't... Like, you get to choose your roommate, but you don't get to choose who your roommate dates. Yeah. Like, uh, maybe you don't want to say this on the podcast. Was your roommate's boyfriend someone I, you actually liked hanging I, out with? I or? wish that my roommate's boyfriend would ever listen to this podcast so that I could say that he was like Bevers and he was like the worst loser ever. But he would never listen to this podcast and he is like amazing. He is like the greatest oh. dude ever. Yeah. Oh, okay. I kind of... Yeah. Um, I, I kind of wish that we good. overlapped for longer. That's good for you. That's kind of, uh, um, I was hoping for a little comic relief from your life, but I'll just mm-hmm. have to keep watching the show then. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm home alone this weekend with my son. So not alone alone, but my, uh, my wife's going to be out of town. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, it's, I don't typically have like, sole child care responsibilities for like that much time at a stretch and so I'm sort of trying to think like I mean he's he's at a uh like it's such a cliche he's at such a good age right but he's he's a it's he's like a lot of fun to hang out with um so we just started reading The Hobbit and oh, cool. uh um and he's really into it and I'm really into it because I, I I was trying to remember I don't think I've read The Hobbit since I was a kid mm-hmm. and I read I reread Lord of the Rings as an adult um and I was sort of coloring my memory of Tolkien, but, you know, I sort of knew in the abstract, like, The Hobbit is a children's book, um, but it's, like, it's funny, and, you know, I'm, I'm reading it, and, like, these characters who, like, if you've seen the movies recently, like I have, or if you've read the Lord of the Rings books, like, Gandalf is this very serious, sort of dark, badass character, but he's, like, kind of goofy and funny in the, at least in the first chapter of The Hobbit or whatever. So anyway, so we're reading that. Um, we'll probably do some of that this weekend. Um, I'm going to try to talk my son into going hiking, but um, it's funny, my, my partner and I, we, we have like, we, we can never, uh, I don't know what the right word is, like we can never use our legs to get places together because if, it, if we call it a hike, she doesn't want to do it. And if we call it a walk, I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, and I think my, I my son has inherited like both of those things. <laughs> like he doesn't want to, so he'll go on a bike ride. He'll go play, like he's very active. He'll go do stuff. But uh, I want to go hiking, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to drag I think you should pitch it as using your legs to get somewhere. <laughs> yeah. That sounds, that makes it sound super fun. I say it's like biking, Just, but you're pedaling the ground. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was one of those kids uh, that, that who like would kind of... not go hiking and my but my parents made me anyway. I was one of those kids who like complained the whole time we'd go hiking. Yeah. My parents were not outdoors people, so they never wanted to go hiking. So for me, like hiking was when I when I started doing like Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, hiking was a thing I did through that. Mm-hmm. And so I have all these like you know, so so it was when I was a little bit older, and I you know I associate it with like adventure and mischief, I guess. Um, you know, rather than sort of being dragged along places by your parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, should we uh, should we talk about our letter of the week? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, the letter begins: Hi, the black goat. I'm a PhD student, and by the time I finish and go on the job market, I'll be right around forty. So I assume I'll be noticeably older than all other applicants with a similar education and publication history. Does this hurt my chances? Have you heard of ageist practices in hiring committees? Is there anything I can do to leverage my age as an advantage rather than a potential disadvantage? Best anonymous. Um, I don't have a ton of insight into this 
letter from personal experience. We've had a couple of, yeah, we've had a couple of older applicants um, for jobs that we've had here. And uh, at least in the most obvious ways, it has, as far as I can tell, it's totally neutral. Um, but it's like, usually it's correlated with other things that are also relevant factors. So sometimes we have job applicants who are older, but they're also more senior. And so then, you know, like there, there can be an advantage in those situations because you're sort of like more sure about their, you know, their, the consistency in their productivity and like they've had more time to establish themselves and things like that. Um, so I don't have a lot of insight into how age as an isolated variable would affect um, would affect hiring committee's decisions. Yeah, I mean, my first thought is like they probably wouldn't know at least before meeting you. Um, I don't think it would be obvious from the written application materials. I guess if they looked closely at your CV and looked at yeah, like when maybe. You, if you if there was a gap between when you got the degrees listed on your CV or something like that. Um, and I, that my other reaction is I do think there's ageism. I can't remember if I've seen it firsthand on like hiring committees I've been on but somehow I've gotten the impression and I'm confident that there is ageism but I think you might have to be older than 40 for it to become a big factor like that would be my intuition is that maybe if there was an applicant for an assistant professor position who is 50 that I think that's more likely to hurt them but at 40 I'm not sure because I think you know it's not that unusual to be in your earlier mid-30s and be an applicant for an assistant professor so I don't think 40 is all that different. And I'm also, like, not sure that people can tell the difference between a 30-year-old and a 40-year-old. At least I can't. From looking at them or talking to them? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, you know, the, something, I mean, you mentioned, like, they wouldn't know. And that, that isn't, the letter writer doesn't say, right? But it, you know, when people are looking at the CV, if you got your undergraduate degree and then the, the you know, you were doing other things in between that would be apparent whereas other people might have not gone to get their undergraduate degree right. until later and so that that would make a difference um you know i think uh, yeah it's interesting because i i have not i've not directly heard or seen a lot of ageism firsthand but it just it strikes me as the sort of thing that seems likely that it could happen just because you know academia is not immune to any of these kinds of biases so and i you know yeah, go ahead. Alex. I was just going to say, like, if we're speculating about, like, so what are people, if people are, like, allowed to say what they really think behind closed doors, what are they, what's the disadvantage of being older? I think, yeah, that's a good question. I think the, and I feel like maybe I've heard people bring this up in some capacity once upon a time. There's a, I think people might have a practical concern that, like, where and again this might kick in more with someone who's who's older than 40 mm-hmm. more but you know this idea that we're we're hiring you and we're only going to get so many years out of you I before see. you retire or whatever okay. um that's a possibility i i think people also probably have stereotypes about people who are older or younger right so there's this sort of and, and in some ways this might be like the absence of the like there's this like the, the the star go-getter who's just ripping their way through yeah. things and and uh, and you're not you don't look like that because you're you're older and and what have you um, so I can imagine mm-hmm. that coming up you know it's also the the I and mean, we're just talking about age um, the you know but the in terms of like you know even if we're talking about like age and recency from PhD or whatever there there's a lot of you know assuming if you're 40 by the time you get your PhD 
what you were doing before graduate school um, could be relevant, right? So that that's a place where that can be an advantage or a disadvantage, probably depending, right? But if you were doing something interesting or something that you can portray as interesting, um, like if there's a, a good story behind, you know, why your path looks the way it did, that could potentially be an advantage. Or right? something. And I can imagine ways to to say like if you have a lot of experience in the business world for example or in an industry and you can you know connect students to resources or or bring that perspective into your work that that would be a way to turn it to an advantage that's less about age per se and more about sort of the things that would be correlated with being an older right. student yeah yeah my guess is that if if people like tried to introspect about why they might have a bias against older people, it would be something like um, it's just so unfamiliar and breaks the mold of like, well, I'm used to like mentoring the junior faculty and I'm used to mentoring them not just about work stuff, but about like life stage stuff. And so it would be weird to have a junior faculty that I'm like supposed to mentor, but that has been through more of life than I have or something, some vague sense of like unfamiliarity and mm -hmm. discomfort that it doesn't fit the mold. But, and I also think the reverse stereotype that that Sandra was talking about the like whiz kid you know blah blah is, is a big deal and that so that harms the older applicants because of that positive stereotype about young applicants who have a lot of publications like yeah I think people still don't correct for like they had the same number of years to publish but even if one had more years to live and to be an adult um, so I think people are more impressed with like a 26 year old who has six publications than a 40 year old who has six publications, even if they've been in the field just as long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. I mean, I do, you know, I, it's hard to know because there are, you know, there aren't, I, I don't know a lot of like anecdotally, I don't know a lot of cases of people who've been in this situation, I've worked with graduate students. I'm currently working with one who started graduate school at a older mm -hmm. than traditional age, and 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 you know, so this is something I've wondered about myself for for you know, sort of advising a graduate student in this situation, and and I, yeah, I don't. This is not something where you know, it's interesting because I think on some level, I think a lot of people are more comfortable openly expressing it would be more comfortable openly expressing ageism than they would like sexism or racism right like in academia uh, in out in the world there are right. plenty of people who are comfortable being openly misogynistic or racist but in academia i think people tend to keep that under wraps where they might you know say things more overtly and i don't hear a lot of chatter about that so that does give me some hope that maybe it just like it might i'm sure it's not zero but maybe it's not a huge deal and maybe it's not a big thing for this letter writer to worry about. I would like to live in a world that way, but I don't want to be overconfident that that's the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like what they could do to leverage their age, I think, yeah, like what you're saying, Sandre, about if they, if their experience would be something they could use to help other people like the students. So experience in industry or in, or like even just knowing and what even, the difference is between a resume and a CV. Like I couldn't right, answer yeah, that question. Like, so you bring like those the, kinds of skills if you've had experience outside academia. I see the opposite stereotypes too. Like you, you hear people talk about applicants being too green. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, usually that's like a comment on them having little experience in the field. But if for you, you know, it just so happens that you do have, you can, you can convey a non-greenness, you know, like a, right. like a level of like experience and familiarity with the field that maybe 
maybe some of that just does come from like being older and knowing more about how the world works in general. Like I think conveying a, a sort of like non-immaturity would be mm -hmm. useful. Yeah, and, and also like non-traditional students, I think a lot of people in academia underestimate how large a proportion of higher education is non-traditionally aged students. And, and so that's where just the age itself, right? Being able to say like, I have, and, and this person is, uh, um, so I don't know when this person's undergraduate was, but their, their graduate work was, was older than the average age, right? But being able to, to, to convey like, I have this experience of being a student that's a different age from other students around me. And that's something that when I'm, you know, teaching or training students or whatever, there are going to be lots of students in that non-traditional category and that I can sort of use my experience of having been there to, to sort of be a, a role model and a resource for people like that. Like that, that is something that in a diversity and inclusion statement or in a teaching statement or other places that, that you might be able to, that's more directly about the age as opposed to like the experience that's correlated with, with being an older student. Yeah. And I think another potential advantage that you can't really say explicitly, but maybe you can give this vibe is that you maybe because you have more life experience, you know more what you're getting into and you're more sure. And so if you accept a job offer, maybe you're more likely to stay. Like maybe this is like you've thought a lot, you've tried other things. This is definitely what you want to do. I don't know. That may or may not be true. And even if it's true, it may or may not be you may not may or may not be able to convey it during the job application process, but it's potentially an advantage. Yeah, well. and this is it's interesting that the you know the last uh, the last letter we had was also in a different way about like what goes on in hiring committees. I feel like that's such a that that's that's such a important topic and it's something that you know graduate students are of course for very obvious reasons naturally very interested in it, it is really interesting i mean it's just this is another case i think i said this on our last episode too that it strikes me that like i know the experiences of search committees i've been on but i have no sense of how similar yeah, right. or representative they are and we have all these you know in some ways like guesswork and assumptions about how search committees work um, it would be really interesting. I know that there was a, a, a sociology paper like a year or two ago that uh, where a, it was a qualitative study where a sociologist um, sat in on hiring committee meetings at, at a university. And they were talking about, I think they were talking about like gender and, and partner hires and that kind of thing. And, and they sort of documented in these committees how often people in the context of partner hires brought up like if it was a woman with a male trailing spouse versus vice versa like mentioning that and using that as a factor in decisions um it would be really interesting to like because I, I do wonder sometimes like i i generally feel really good about the search committees i've been on but i wonder sometimes like would that be the if i could like be a fly on the wall and like you know a bunch of other universities, psych departments, search committees, would they be about the same or would I be like shocked and appalled at what's going on? Mm. I have no idea. We'll never know. Yeah, yeah we, we only yeah. have a small, I mean, we have a small amount of experience between the three of us, but it's still, I think it's something people don't talk about very much. So for listeners who have no experience who are at a career stage where they've never been on a search committee, I think it can still be useful even if our, our experience might be biased or unrepresentative or whatever, I think it's still useful. Hopefully. Well, this is, I mean, this is kind of tangential to the letter, but that brings up, I think, a really good point, which is that if you're, a, if you're at a 
university, if you're at a department where there's student reps on search committees, like that can be a really valuable experience as a graduate student if you're thinking of going in academia to like, you know, volunteer yourself to to do it's it's a non trivial amount of work, but like I I was on a search committee when I was a graduate student and it it just made a huge difference when I was finally on the job market, having been in one instance of it. And just having like looked at what applications look like and having seen what kinds of things actually get talked about and so what, what things get noticed and, and that kind of thing. So that's something grad students sometimes have that opportunity depending. I don't know. Do you guys have student reps on your search committees? I'm pretty sure we do. Not positive. I don't think we do, but they, we, we did when I was in grad school. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we did at WashU and I've been on a search committee at Davis, but I don't remember. No. Yeah, we have we have them at Oregon. We we did in my grad program. We have them at Oregon too, and and I think it's a pretty valuable experience. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, even as a faculty member, that's the kind of service I'm most happy to do because those decisions are so important, and the incentives, yeah. the incentive structure that the, those committees create is so important. Yeah. So out of all yeah. the different kinds of service, I would I would say that would be near the top of my list. Yeah. And they can be a lot of fun too. Like yeah. for mm-hmm. for the, I mean, they're non-trivial amount of work, but for the amount of work they are, like getting to like read about people's research and getting to like meet people and getting to go to dinner, <laughs> like all those things mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. you know, they they can they they can be more fun than being on the you know whatever. The, Depending uh, on the department you know. politics. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, I guess they they may not be if if things are are polarized or something. Yeah, mm. cool. Well, thank you, anonymous, uh, for your letter. I, I I hope we're helpful. I don't know. Maybe maybe the fact that we didn't have super strong views is kind of a good sign. Like none of us was like, holy shit, yes, it, search committees are Just awful. Just give about up this, right, right now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so maybe that was maybe that that in and of itself, I hope was was helpful or, or encouraging or what have you. I certainly don't think that the disadvantages, I don't know, are, are, are enough that I would be discouraged. One thing I remember, I can't remember where I heard the statistic or, or what it is exactly, but there was some young academy that's for like early career academics. I don't know what the population is, but I remember finding out that the average age of members of that, and I don't know what you have to be to be eligible, but was 37 years old. So if the hmm. cutoff is like, once you get a tenure track position or once you get tenure I don't know but it suggests that there are plenty and this was not psychology specific so I think in the harder sciences it takes longer to get a tenure track position and so on but I don't think a 40 year old brand new assistant professor is all that rare yeah 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 and and I mean I think what I would also yeah what I'd say to people listening who might be on the other side of it is like just be on the lookout for these kinds of things in search committees and I know I've certainly like I've made a conscious effort um to not use age language when I'm talking about career stage. Like, I, I don't think I'm perfect about that. I think I slip up. But instead of saying, like, a young researcher, I try to say early career researcher right. because, you The know, young academy thing like, is weird. I don't know why they call it that. Yeah, <laughs> right, the early career academy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah, cool. Cool, well, thanks, uh, thanks Anonymous. And, and if you're listening and you have a situation, dilemma, query, uh, what have you that you want to email us about, you can reach us, letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. You can find us on the web, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter, at blackcoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackcoatpod. 
And you can find us on iTunes. You can rate us there, and that helps people find us. And uh, we're always appreciative of people that uh, listen to us. If you send us feedback or not, uh, uh, we still uh, appreciate people listening to us. We're grateful for that. Um, so for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about R. R. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's talk like a pirate day. R. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, so so I, uh, sort of, I mean, it's an interesting topic to me because like, I don't know, I, like R wasn't around when I was in graduate school. Um, uh, but there was like, you know, people made a big deal about whether you're an SPSS user or a SAS user. And it was mm-hmm. like a it was it was like some minimal groups paradigm, like classic Tajfell kind of thing where people would just feel really superior about whatever it was that they used. And and when I I, I would like learned SPSS and uh, um, you know when I was finally exposed to SAS and and I learned it, I was like, this is kind of the same thing. It's <laughs> not that much better. It's I can see why a little bit, but you know, um, I'm sure I just pissed off a bunch of like <laughs> you know old school SAS people, but uh, um, I, I think there's something different about R because it's, you know, and we can we can get into this sort of on the technical side, right? But um, it's it's something that has been, a I think, a big change. It's been a, been a big sort of sea change in, in the field, and it kind of ties in because it's coding-based much more so than, you know, SPSS can be, but it's often not, and so forth. Um, and it's kind of correlated with all these social changes about how many jobs involve sort of coding and, and that sort of thing, that, that it's kind of a different beast. I don't know. Do you, do you guys feel like, like, did you have the same experience of like people having really polarized arguments about uh, what statistical software they used when you were in yeah, grad I don't, school? I don't remember or? anyone ever being like, yeah, SPP, SPSS, you know, it's more like if, if you didn't use SPSS, you were like yeah. self-righteous about it. Yeah, that was right. my experience mm-hmm. of grad school. Same. So like yeah. people who used SAS or people who used, I don't remember what was around then, like M plus and Amos and mm-hmm. whatever else. Um, yeah. But nobody who used SPSS thought that that was like better they just were like yeah i haven't bothered to learn the other things yeah right yeah right <laughs> right yeah um it's like having spss is like having an iphone it's like yeah i have an iphone right, right. <laughs> but that's, that's not true has. some people have strong opinions about having an iphone <laughs> but it's just sort of like the default also like because spss costs money and now i mean that's one of the big differences with ours that it's free but so it feels weird to be like proud of the fact that you're a chump and you're giving money to spss who's extorting you because they know that you're not going to learn other software or whatever so it feels like a weird i don't remember anyone like being proud of the fact that they were dependent on spss and i was one of those people who was dependent on spss i mean i learned sas for one semester because i had to for one project and then i forgot it right away I think that the free issues, it's a really interesting one. There, there's both free in the, the sense of, you know, free money-wise, and then there's the sort of open source sense mm-hmm. of free, right? And, and it's interesting that I remember, so, so, you know, when I was in grad school, um, there was an effort to come up with a free open source alternative to SPSS and it was called PSPP mm-hmm. and like you know it was one of these like sort of valiant but but you know nobody really wanted to do it but like there you know you could download a beta that barely ran on your computer or whatever and that's kind of how R started out as well so 
there was uh, a, a precursor to it, which I do remember being around, you know, when I was in, this is actually how I kind of learned about R, was there was this software package called S+, which was based on a language called S, and, and S+, was commercial software, you had to pay for it. Um, and I was working on a project with somebody who used S plus and they showed it to me and I was like, oh, this is cool. And then I think R maybe was in beta towards the end of my graduate school or something. And, and so it was the same kind of deal where like S had been invented by AT&T like, you know, decades earlier or whatever. And, and there was this commercial software that, that ran the language. Um, but people wanted to create R and so it was initially sort of a version of the language but then it totally took off like all these people worked on the software and developed the open source software and now it's this like and I don't even know if S plus still exists but nobody uses it and and so it's kind of interesting so there was something about like you know because for open source software you need a community of people who work on it and there was something about the idea of R that resonated with people who had the technical skills and the time and, and whatever to, to work on turning it into something that's what it is eventually became what it is now, which is like totally taken over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are different about R than what the options were before R. I think, yeah, the open source aspect of it is a big part of it. It's funny because I think even though like people like me it doesn't affect me directly that it's open source. Like I would never actually write packages or things like that, but it affects me indirectly because it means that whatever, whenever there's like something you can't do in R, like three months later, you can do it in R, which is kind of cool. Um, whereas like, yeah, with SPSS, like I remember when, when my lab used SPSS, we also had to buy M plus and we also had to buy this and that and whatever. Whereas with R, there's a few things that my grad students can't do in it, but it's pretty rare. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if pretty soon we could rely entirely on R. Um, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you guys use like personally and what do you use in your labs? I still use SPSS. So, um, which is, yeah. And it's, it's funny. So like I was looking at the, your, the sort of questions that you had written down Sanjay for like things that we could talk about. And one of them is about like how important it is to know R. And I think it's really important. I think that I should, that's like what I, sh- I should just like do it. I should start learning. You have all this free time. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've thought about that, actually. Um, But yeah, I think it's really important. And I should put up our wallpaper. That's the answer. So what, Alexa, why why do you think that? Because so this is really right. Like, is it is it sort of peer pressure? Like everyone's doing it? Or is it like, are there things that you think? Because I think this is Uh, what comes up naturally. This is why, like, before I learned it, why I didn't wasn't learning it was like well I can do everything I need to do in SPSS um and so is it the case and then eventually that stopped being true and and so I was motivated to learn it but like do you want to learn it because there are things it's holding you back by not knowing or is it more like you want to be part of what's going on with it or yeah uh I think I have the relatively vague impression so I couldn't give you like a concrete thing um that once you know how to do R, it's much easier to do many things. Um, but I could be wrong about that. I also think, so I just started learning R a month ago. I went to a workshop taught by Dale Barr in University of Glasgow. Or not not at the University of Glasgow, in Glasgow. Um, and I haven't practiced since then, so it's a little bit extreme to say I've started learning R. I had started learning R. <laughs> um mm-hmm. 
but I think I have to, even though, so my lab uses R, so that's one reason, like my grad students use R. Mm -hmm. But also, if you're going to be a reviewer or editor of papers, more and more of them are submitting code, and most of that code is in R. Um, mm -hmm. So I think to be a good, like, reviewer and um, consumer of, of research now that it's becoming more possible to actually look at people's code and check it and stuff like that or run new analyses, it seems like it's becoming important to speak that language, even if you don't need it for your own analyses. And then for me, the third reason, and maybe the best place to start, I think, is data visualization. Like, it seems like you can do really cool mm -hmm. things in R. And every time I've started trying to learn R, I've started with a course that's heavy on data visualization. So in the past, it's been like a half day course or whatever. And this time it was a week long thing where data visualization was only part of it. But it was the easiest part and the most gratifying like you immediately can make really cool looking plots so i think that's probably the way to start um mm. i also every time i've learned it's been with tidyverse which i think is really cool i mean i don't have anything to compare it to i don't i never learned never tried to learn base r but i think those seem like the two options like either you learn the old school base r or you learn this newer it's still the same language but it's like new packages and stuff and the syntax is a little bit different in tidyverse so I think learning Tidyverse and specifically learning data visualization like ggplot, I think ggplot is part of Tidyverse or it's a separate thing. I don't know. Anyway, that mm -hmm. that aspect of it, to me, I feel like that's the best way to start because you can immediately do something and have something to show for it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that like I, so I, I started learning SPSS in graduate school and I, but I learned it for a project that was like one of the things I was working on was a, a project where all the data was hosted on a mainframe. And so you ran your SPSS analyses. The only way to run them was in code because there was no graphical interface. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a mainframe version of SPSS running on this mainframe. And so you, you had to create code for, you know, syntax for SPSS. And so it's interesting how like people talk about R for reproducibility and, and, I, because I worked on this collaborative project where you could only write code, I learned to do SPSS in a way that could be made very reproducible. And that was actually how I learned my initial pipeline. Except that um, you have to and, buy the software. I think that's a huge obstacle to reproducibility. Yeah, but, but within the project, we could reproduce yeah. each other's, we could produce our, our own. And, and, you know, the, and, and, you know, I, people have pointed out that one of the problems with, with R is that there are so many versions and, and packages and whatever that that can actually be an obstacle because mm -hmm. like which version of the obscure rare package or mm -hmm. whatever, whereas a corporate controlled product is, is much more consistent. But anyway, the, uh, I mean, the point being that like, I think there's, when people have these discussions about what should you learn, what should you be doing? There's sometimes they're talking about like in very literal sense of what's technologically possible. Like what's the language definition do? What are what could you theoretically do? But on top of it, there is like an ecosystem and a culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one of the like and this is yeah, this is where this idea of learning you know, I could reproduce my own code in SPSS and I found that very useful because I could go back to old projects and, you know, figure out what the hell I was doing and whatever. And on this team project, we could reproduce each other's code. But like, yeah, if people don't have access to the software, they couldn't. And if people, if nobody else is learning SPSS syntax, then it kind of doesn't matter, right? And whereas with R, there's a culture around it. There's like, 
what you and and people have created graphical overlays for R and but you know and and they can be useful as beginner tools but that it's just part of the culture that you do everything in code in R and it's part of you know my my experience of SPSS was an exception right it's part of the culture of SPSS part of the typical use pattern that you do things through the graphical interface um, in a less reproducible way um, and so to me that's a really interesting part of it you know, is, is like, what are you learning when you say you're learning R? Are you just learning literally the language definition and, and the sort of technological tools? Or are you being like socialized into ways of doing things? Are you being sort of, you're learning these additional skills and, and it's, you know, you're, you're getting, when you run into roadblocks and you're going and asking people for help, it's different people you're asking for help who have different ways of thinking about things. And so you're connecting to them in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so R kind of becomes this, this much larger thing than just like the, you know, the application that runs on your computer or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now there's like R markdown. So people are writing papers in R, um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's not just for stats. Like, it's for, yeah, making graphs, writing papers, making websites. Like, there's, it's Are there taking like, over. Um, agreed upon philosophical differences between people who use R and people who don't? Like, what are the, the cultural markers of R users? I mean, I have as a opposed sex, to who. So, so I think it depends who the comparison group is. Like SPSS, Let's say SPSS. users. Okay. Uh, I mean, again, I think I don't know any people who are like proud SPSS users. No, I'm talking about shameful SPSS. Users. Yeah. Well, then I think <laughs> it's just SPSS like users. who's made yeah. it. Who has made it a priority to learn R? And so it's a. I I don't know. I'm. I would put myself in the SPSS group, even though I don't use SPSS, but I but I don't use R for all the same reasons that SPSS users don't use R, which is just like, I think for most of us, it's like, I haven't gotten around to it or I'm like, mm-hmm. there's, I have some psychological hurdle that I can't get over, but I think I should. So right, I, but it, I agree with Sanjay that there is a cultural, like I, idea associated with R. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I have associations with people who use R too. So for instance, I, I'm going to assume that if somebody uses R, they're more likely to be, into replicability than somebody who doesn't Um, and into programming in general i would say like they're probably it's probably much more like if you've learned another programming language that you won't find learning r so daunting as an idea sure um yeah and i I think there are people that are actively trying to change that right so they're trying to make coding mm -hmm. feel less daunting and make it more normal in in psychology but i think that is like traditionally certainly you know if you go back not very far like the I mean I remember having you know within the last five ten years having conversations in my department about like should we be transitioning over to our to to our graduate teaching and maybe even our undergraduate teaching and and hearing from people like that's too difficult that's you're you know you're asking too much of people and that's starting to really change now and I think you know you still hear that kind of and it's interesting there there's kind of the like if you're an old dog being asked to learn a new trick and it feels hard, but like to a lot of students, it's just like, well, they don't know anything. And, uh, it doesn't, it's, it's, you know, you really don't have to be like a heavy duty coder to, to learn R. Um, you have to have the time, but, but if you're being forced to take a stats class and learn something, you, you know, 
um, you can learn it. Yeah. But I think that, I I mean, I think traditionally it is, there's more, much more of an affinity with people who do coding. You're, that's absolutely right. I think there's much more of an affinity with people that do more advanced or unorthodox statistical techniques. So, you know, there was a period of time when SPSS didn't do multi-level models. And mm-hmm. so you, you at SAS did, um, but R, you know, was also like the place that it did. Now SPSS does them, right? But there's, you know, as R has always had like, you know, newer, more cutting edge stuff than, than the big commercial packages. And so that's, you know, for people that tend to do that, that's, I think, part of the appeal to... And then people who either don't have the money to pay for licenses every year or who, as a matter of principle, don't want to pay for licenses. It's another crowd, I think, that are going to bother to learn R. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more like, yeah, just how many obstacles are there in your mind to learning R? Like, At least it's my impression is that everybody... But that's going to be correlated with other qualities, too. Right, right. Yeah. 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 So what do you guys think about like teaching graduates and undergraduates? Um, should I think R now be the the standard in psychology? Should it should it be taught side by side? Is it not ready for general use? And that's like an advanced thing that you learn as an option. I don't understand the argument that it's like too hard because SPSS isn't easy. Like you still have to learn it. It's not like you can just open it and know how to do things. So. If you have to learn something anyway, I don't think it's that much harder. If all you're gonna, I mean, also I'm imagining a like basic undergrad class where they're learning like t-test, ANOVA, correlation, maybe one or two other things. I don't. I assume I don't know, but I assume it's not that hard to do an R. And even if they're just like memorizing syntax, they don't really understand what they're doing. Okay, but that's what they'd be doing in SPSS anyway, or memorizing mm-hmm. the series of point Many and years. click, right? So I think it's not that much harder to get people to do are with the same level of understanding of what they're doing that they have in SPSS. For me, the bigger question is, should they even be learning how to do stats themselves at a mass level? Like, is that something that every undergrad psych major needs to learn how to do? And I have views about that, but that's a separate question. Really? Yeah. I just think they're not getting the basics. Like, I would much rather they learn conceptually what statistics is for and what validity oh, yeah, and research methods is and stuff like that and then the ones who want to go on to grad school in psych can take statistics courses and so on but i think the the basic statistics that everyone gets should be conceptual i'm not sure why the like 90 percent of psych majors who are never going to do social science research need to learn how to do an anova and need to learn the difference between a, like factorial ANOVA and one-way ANOVA or whatever. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. No. Like, that makes perfect sense to me. I, I mean, it's a very, I, I'm surprised it makes sense to you because I think I haven't thought it through that much and I suspect I'm wrong and I, I'm pretty sure most people would disagree with me, but it's more, I'm more Yeah, more I don't know. I haven't thought about it at all before. At first I was like, yeah, it's good for undergrads to have stats training, but I do think that the conceptual stuff is much more important than, I mean, I think many undergrads learn yeah, how to like hand calculate an ANOVA, right? That sounds a little, seems a little useless. Um, yeah, also, yeah, I've thought about it for the past 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah. I think it really um, matters what they're going to do after their undergrad degree. And I think that yeah, like, what, what yeah. a psych major needs to know to be a good consumer of research is quite different than what a psych major needs to know to be a good producer of research. Yeah, right. And there's so much room to improve the consumer research side. Yeah, and We would definitely. need to take that time away from something else, and that's one place we could get that time back. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, if we're if they're gonna learn stats, I would say why not R over SPSS. That's interesting. I'm I, I'm gonna have to think about that one. Maybe maybe we've got a future episode coming up. Like, should mm-hmm. we stop teaching undergrad stats? Because yeah. I I've not heard you say that before, Samin, and I'm I'm. Uh, uh, yeah, you uh, look really sure what, angry not... right now, Sanjay. <laughs> <laughs> Arr, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But what about graduate students? So you, so you, do both of you think like that? That should just be what everyone learns, and the one thing everybody learns. Yeah, I mean, in sort of an abstract way, sure, because. I mean, the fact that it's free in both the senses that you described, Sanjay, is such a huge advantage that um, that if you're going to learn something, it seems like the thing to learn. And also, I think that there's like less of a ceiling on what R can be than SPSS, for instance, right? Um, so yeah, they might as well learn R. Um, if my students only knew R and they didn't know SPSS at the current moment, I mean, maybe it would be good. It would just like create more pressure to learn R for me. Um, but I imagine that many labs are in that situation where there would be like a divide between the advisor and the students. Um, that would not be ideal. I'm yeah. in that position. Right. I'm not sure so it makes that much of a that? difference. Uh, I mean, it means that I don't look at, all the analyses at the level of the code and that's not ideal but do you like do you look at your no yeah no so i'm not I don't. sure it would be all that different like i look at the output of their analyses i look at the graphs i look at their verbal description of the analyses they ran um i ask some questions mm-hmm. about why they did or didn't let something be random or you know like i know how to do that yep. stuff but i don't know if i need to i mean of course it would be much much better if i knew the language and if i could read their code i completely agree i just don't know how many advisors actually do that who use spss um yeah i think well, that that's what what yeah what would you look at would you like look at a video of them pointing and clicking at things or <laughs> no they could, you could teach um, them to save the syntax and yeah you know, yeah. yeah even yeah, if you don't right, write in syntax spss makes it very easy to save it well okay right, right. so one thing that, that is nice yeah. about knowing the same software is that like if something looks strange um, mm-hmm. then you can yeah. you can sit down next to them and yeah, I mean, part of why it's not that weird for me that my grad students know R and I don't is that they also know way, way more stats than I do. So independent yeah. of the software, they would catch something looking funny before I would anyway. Um, so, I mean, this is also not ideal. <laughs> with some, like, idiosyncrasies. Like, right. they know more about stats than I do, too, and know more about stats software. Um, but then there are still times when they, like, miss something that... Yeah, I would catch. Yeah. So just to I mean, be... the, this is something that's a big part of like our locally as well as at large is is that there are, you know, are, and a relevant consideration for like what you teach in a grad program or anywhere else is like who's around to help people and where yeah. is it right? So so my department has more or less transitioned our graduate training now just to R. And there, when we first did that, uh, um, or before we did that, there was a group of graduate students who were really interested in learning R, and they basically self-taught. They they created an R club, and they they taught each other. And then once they had that, R club became a consulting group and a sort of advanced study group. And then 
when we needed TAs for our graduate classes, we had this like body of amazing graduate students who were who understood R better than the professors for the most part. You know, most of us did, and and you know, and, and so. But now we've gotten to the point where it's kind of funny that like all of our graduate students know R, and so now when they TA our undergraduate classes that are taught in SPSS they don't know SPSS. Uh, and so it's kind of what you were saying before, Samin, like everyone assumes SPSS is easy and R is hard, but like, they're all like, what the fuck is this thing? What am I supposed to like, what are these weird, like graphical, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, so, you know, we're, we're having some conversations about, you know, should we start doing undergrad in, in R? I think a couple of our uh, new faculty are teaching Jamovi, which has an R engine underneath it, but it's a graphical interface um, as a sort of intermediate step. Um, but uh, yeah, that that idea of like having a, a sort of a community and and sort of the people around you is is a huge part of it. Because yeah, like my graduate students when they run into brick walls with with their R code like they, I mean, I know some R and and you know we'll sometimes talk about it, but often they're helping each other way. More better than I could and I I often when I'm using R end up asking them I'll like thank God John Flournoy is still in my lab slack so (laughs) he'll like (laughs) you know someone posts a question he'll like pipe in with uh um you know he's off doing a postdoc now but uh um uh yeah things like that you know it's like go ask John I think more and more campuses have like we have a data science initiative where they have like open uh, office hours anybody can drop in but they're only for R and Python I think um, I don't think you could go there with an SPSS question. I would, just to be provocative, my answer to Sanjay's question about whether grad programs should teach an R, I, I don't know if I really believe this, but I think I might think it's actually unethical not to, at least for personality psych. Like social psych is a little bit different because there's a lot more, a bigger proportion of studies are pretty simple and mm-hmm. analytic design. But right. in personality psych, if I was going to recruit a postdoc and they didn't know R, that would be a huge, and I'm a huge hypocrite. I don't know R, but maybe especially because I don't know R, like my postdoc needs to know R. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like it would be weird for, uh, the grad program would be putting their students at a pretty big disadvantage, at least in my world. I don't know how far it extends if they were teaching an SPSS instead of R. If they were teaching like Python instead of of R, then maybe that would be okay. I don't know. I don't know what that would mean. But just between SPSS and R, I think it seems like you're really disadvantaging your students if you're not making learning R part of their training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this is where, like, it feels a bit like a, a qualitative distinction, like a difference between the old, like, SPSS versus SAS kind of debates is because R is open and it's anybody can write packages and so it's constantly growing that learning learning R gives you sort of more of an open an open-ended path forward right where it's not that SPSS and SAS don't eventually add new features and whatever but but that I think that's part of you know part of what what you're bringing up is like in a if you're working in an area where people tend to adopt new methods and where they're not still just running two by two ANOVAs forever um not only knowing everything that people are doing now, but being in a position to adopt the next thing that people are doing, um, whether it's, you know, Bayesian multi-level models or, or you know, machine learning, different kinds of machine learning approaches or, or what have you. 
Um, and so there, I mean, that's where like Python versus R becomes a really interesting, because both of those have that potential and they both have strengths. Mm -hmm. I also feel like if you've got the coding skills to, to be working in Python, you can pick up enough R to, to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'm wrong, but yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about like, with I just I just had a meeting with a group of undergrads yesterday who are interested in going to grad school and they're asking like how they can make themselves stand out in their applications and one thing I tell them is like if you learn R that will help you stand out at least in social personality programs and I know when I'm recruiting grad students that's definitely a plus if they come in knowing R so then if I'm telling that to undergrads then it seems like surely for grad students who are moving on to a postdoc or job or whatever that that would be a, a huge thing and I have one undergrad who just taught herself R like on the side like I don't even think she spent that many hours at it but she already knows more than I do and she got into her number one grad program with who her advisor is a quantitative psychologist and I think she probably I mean that probably made a big difference that she has done yeah. some small projects in R mm -hmm. well that's another like another advantage of the free thing you know the the free in the sense of money, like yeah. money free is that and this is something that I think is so underappreciated right is that if you own a computer, you can have R on your computer. Mm -hmm. And I know like when I, so I teach structural equation modeling. I used to teach it in M plus. M plus is great, by the way. It, it M plus breaks the mold of the idea that like R always has cutting edge stuff because Bank Mutain is like, you know, was a quantitative, I think he's retired now, but you know, was a quantitative, was developing a lot of the new techniques and then he'd like, put them into M plus first or whatever. So M plus always had the most cutting edge stuff in SEM, but it's very expensive. And so I would teach this class and, and in my class, we're not doing the cutting edge stuff where, where, you know, it's like your first SEM class. And so the students, when they would do their homework or when they would do their projects, it was like if they worked in a lab that had M plus, they could maybe work on their stuff in their lab, but otherwise they'd have to come into like the department computer lab. Whereas now we switched to using Levon, which is an R package, and they can they can play around with it and work on their projects and work on their homework on their own computers or on any computer that they mm -hmm. have access to and it is you know the whole thing like maybe uh, maybe hypothetically let's say that even if we granted that that r is somewhat more difficult to learn than SPSS there's also the fact that if you're learning SPSS or you're learning M plus or whatever if you have very limited access to actually use it that's going to hamper your learning in a way that having any kind of a free product that you can use um, anywhere you want is, is going to you know and it's, so especially for people like your your students I mean that's like self-motivated to learn just makes it so possible and easy and then plus the ecosystem and culture idea that there's so many resources that for self-teaching for someone that that wants to do that so but this is this is a behavior change question but how do you make yourself want to do that and actually do it so i know like if my undergrad could do it yeah. i could do it and if i have time to play solitaire in the middle of the day i can find time to do it but i just can't i can't make myself do it like i did it in glasgow for a week but that now I just can't make myself like find half an hour every third day or whatever it would take to keep up with it. Does, do you two have any tips about that? Well, I'm exactly I, in the same it, situation, <laughs> even a little bit further behind than you. So, yeah. I think you have to, I think the, the, it has to, it has to be the thing you need for something you care about for some other reason. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and I don't know if you're in a position where you ever have to be analyzing data anymore. So this may be like harder for you, right? But if you, if you have a project that you just, you start it in R and you just 
staunchly refuse to do any part of it in SPSS. And so, and, and if you have to be working on the project in R, then, because that's, one, that's the motivation, but two, like, that's just how you learn is by doing, by solving problems. And that, that, so that was how I learned R, was by saying, okay, I've got this project, we're just gonna, you know, we're gonna do it in R. We're, we're, I'm not gonna create the data file in SPSS and then dabble in, oh, can I also do the same thing in R? It's just like, fuck it, we're doing it in R um, from, from the get-go. And so if I wanna do anything, the only way I can do it is in R. I think that's probably like mm -hmm. the the you know and I mean I guess a version a related version of that is if there if you have a project where you let's say you want to run an analysis that your preferred option of SPSS or whatever can't do and then you want to do that but you know you may not be in that situation as often and so simply even and and there are advantages to like the things you already know how to do in SPSS, like doing those things first in R, so at least you can map it onto it, but not allowing yourself to use SPSS. I don't know if you would find yourself in that kind of a position. Do you ever analyze data anymore? No. <laughs> I want I want to hear Alexa's answer though. I do. Yeah. Um, so would that work for a you? A little bit. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, I think that would work. Also, I think, I think that, that my students are motivated to learn R, so yeah. um, so I could, I mean, that's usually the way that I force myself to learn something that I think I should learn, but there's never going to be like an immediate incentive is like make it an obligation to somebody else. Um, so yeah, I would probably, Yeah. making myself obligated to them might work. Yeah. I don't have any of my own projects. Like all my research projects are led by my grad students and they do the stats. So, but I could try to like reproduce their stats or something like that. Some of them mm -hmm. are just too complicated. It wouldn't be a good place to start, but some of the simpler ones. Or like the other thing I've thought of is like when I'm reviewing or handling a paper that shared the data and code, like, you know, looking at their code, running it, and then trying to like tweak it or see if I can understand what it does or maybe eventually try to just read the paper and download their data and write my own code if it's a simple enough analysis but mm -hmm. I don't have to do that and so when it's like do that or move on to the next of the 18 papers I have to handle it's really hard to make myself do it the other place that where it might be relevant and as I like I was talking about before that data visualization is a little easier maybe next time I write a powerpoint talk where there's data visualization in it I try to make myself do it in R but that's also hard because like I think my last talk where I had to put in a graph I literally drew the graph by hand took a picture of it and that's the graph on my slide <laughs> so I'm pretty what? low tech yeah I mean that's it's a nuts. it's a hypothetical distribution it's like my it's like a replicability talk so it's not about an actual data set uh -huh. with where the points matter it's like I a see, bunch of distributions and stuff but uh yeah I mean I still do almost everything paper and pen like I yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do with myself. What do you mean you do things with paper and pen? What do you do with paper and pen? Like, if I'm in a meeting, I take notes, paper and pen. If I need to okay. handle a manuscript, I print it out and write my notes in paper and pen. And oh, yeah, like, that's... Yeah, I, I kill a lot of that's trees. That's old school. Yeah. I feel like I would be remiss if we went this whole episode talking about stats software and I didn't mention that my cat Yoriskog was sitting right next to me the whole time and apparently he's <laughs> named after the inventor of Lizrel and I don't know what any of that means because he was named by my ex-boyfriend but I feel like 
it would be wrong not to mention that. Mm. Have you ever used Liz Roll, Sanjay? Um, only, only to sort of like play with it. I've never used it for a serious real analysis. It was, I think it was, uh, yeah, I don't think I ever, I think it, it, it's a paid program and I don't mm. think I ever had like a, a license. license for it. Yeah. it li- you know, there's the whole like within the SEM world, there's people have very strong polarized views about what software is yeah. better. And, and Lizrael definitely has the like, it was the original and, mm. and you get a lot of like old school cred if you're a Lizrael <laughs> user. Um, and also like, I, I don't even, I haven't kept up with it. So I don't know. I know once upon a time, like you had to specify all your analyses in matrices. So that's also like, you know, it's like you have to know the math. Whereas, you know, I, I learned on Amos and people really poo-pooed Amos. And then didn't it get bought by SPSS? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think it, I think it's still around. I think it's like a add-on module to yeah. SPSS or yeah. something. I remember when I was in grad school, there was an email that was shared among all the grad students that had a soft a license code for SPSS that was valid for 10 years. So I had like this free illegal Uh-oh. SPSS for 10 years. And I think that was the last time I had SPSS. And when that ran out, I just never. The software <laughs> license police are going yeah. to show up at your door as yeah. soon as this episode comes out. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Should we, uh, should we wrap it up? Yeah. Are we? Uh, sure. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening to The Black Goat, and we will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.